to Psalm 131. A pilgrimage of Song of David's. Lord, Lord, my heart isn't proud. And my eyes aren't conceited. I don't get involved with things too great or wonderful for me. No, but I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child on its mother. I'm like the weaned child on me. Israel, wait for the Lord from now until forever from now. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks, G. So I always find the Psalms kind of difficult to preach from. They lack kind of the narrative intrigue of the Gospels or like preaching from the book of Exodus where there's a story that is happening and you, we can kind of journey that story together. Um, although paired with the David stories, the Psalms kind of read like entries from his moleskin diary as he flees from Saul, as he's confronted by Nathan, Psalm 51, as he grows over this long period of time in these jagged spikes to become the man after God's own heart that he's known to be. These Psalms, though, generally, they also lack like the pragmatism of Proverbs or uh, Paul's letters, like, just tell me what to do, right? The Psalms don't generally do that. The Psalms just kind of are. They, they're, they're songs, really. They're songs to be played and prayers to be prayed, both individually and as we join our voices together in community. They're more songs, more art than science. They're, they're, they're more um, uh, theological imagination formers and outputs of our emotional life before God than they are theological texts to be dissected or trees to be made declarations from. So in this way, the Psalms are kind of perfect for this season of Lent. You see, in these Psalms in particular, these Psalms of ascent that Gary just read, Psalms of going up that are attributed to David and are embraced by a community on the move, these are songs that God's people sing on pilgrimage to meet with God. And, and when you're on pilgrimage to meet with God, you don't wait for the destination to, to begin singing these songs of praise and longing and remembrance and repentance and hope. There's kind of a recognition in that that uh, the way is the way, right? Or like every step is a little arrival, that a life of faith and community has a certain element of, of movement to it, of, of fugitivity, that you're not too at home or fixed at any given time. We're increasingly becoming at home in and fixated on God instead of where God has us at any particular moment. The Venn diagram that contains the Psalms of Ascent in the season of Lenten preparation and focus and journey that we're on individually and collectively has a really big center portion in it. There's this, this restlessness, this not-at-homeness to both Lent and these Psalms. They're both minor chorded they're, they're hoping, but they're not triumphant because they haven't arrived yet, and, and you're kind of tentative that you might even have an estimated time of arrival. 
you're a little bit afraid to hope. And so these psalms form a, a really specific kind of spirituality if we're immersed in them. Uh, Jamie Smith writes about this as a, a refugee spirituality. He says, it's an understanding of human longing and estrangement that not only honors our experiences of not-at-homeness, but also affirms, affirms the hope of actually finding a home, finding oneself. The immigrant is migrating towards a home she hasn't seen yet and has never been to. She will arrive in a strange land in ways that surprise her and come to say, I'm not, or, or, or she'll actually arrive in a strange land and come to say, I'm at home here. That's the hope at least. Not least because someone is there to greet her and say, welcome home. Rach mentioned this in her introduction that we might be a place to say, welcome home. Uh, Jamie continues, he says, the goal isn't to return to a home, but to be welcomed home in a place you weren't born, that you're arriving in a strange land and being told that you belong here. And so this is, this is what the Psalms form in us and the outlet they provide for us. Maybe these are the perfect songs for the place that we're in right now. Searching for a home we can only find in God. Maybe these psalms can be for us the sorts of songs that parents teach to their kids so that they can learn and grow and be formed. Like, you learn the ABCs by a song. You, you learn the days of the week by a song. Our kids were taught the days of the week at school with the Adams Family song. Does anyone know that jingle? Uh, when we were meeting before service, uh, Anna shared that she never knew that Take My Life and Let It Be was a hymn because it was the before food prayer. Uh, you can ask her to sing that to you. I won't do that. <laughs> There's songs that teach the, every state in the union, alphabetically even, and maybe even the capitals. And of course, songs like Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So, is a song that even a uh, marquee theologian like Karl Barth, when asked to sum up his theology and what the gospel is, he just recited the words to Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. These are, these are rich, dense song, songs, and these psalms can be that for us too. So consider Psalm 131 that Gary just read. It starts... My heart is not proud, Lord, and my eyes are not haughty. Right off the bat, inside and out, it's a prayer that is right-sizing us before God. My heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. Both what we've aimed our desires at, our hearts at, and what we've set our eyes on. This is the our direction, this is our ambition, and they're being held in check. They're being anchored right in the middle by our address to God and God's address to us. This has to be our first move. On these, these 40 days kind of serve as a, as a recalibration or a, a cleanse for our subtle uh, prosperity gospels that kind of seep into our lives and we're entranced by, and sometimes we don't even know it. So consider examining in prayer this week. Ask the Spirit to, to root these things out, ways that your, your heart is proud, your eyes are haughty, <laughs> right? 
Ask the Spirit to root out these places of pride that sit as pale substitutes for God in our hearts. If you're at a loss, normally idols are the sorts of things that don't like to be messed with or make you feel uncomfortable when someone starts to move that furniture around in your spiritual house, right? Uh, I, this week I, I heard the expression from a, a Christian leader about, about um, Christian pastors, and he says, uh, I've, I asked these Christian pastors if their congregations have a problem with uh, Christian nationalism, and, and a lot of them say, no, no, no way, not us. He goes, take the flag out of your sanctuary, and, and then you will know if you have a problem with Christian nationalism, right? And so when we start to move the furniture around, that's when we determine our direction of our eyes and our hearts, Show me what causes you the most anxiety or fear of loss, and perhaps you'll also be putting your finger on something that is too big in the dashboard of your life. When we were kids, these sorts of things were, were things like if we fit in or if so-and-so likes me or like the desperation that you would have when one of the like little stars in the constellation of who you were hoping to become started to fall out of orbit or whatever. Like those are the things that, that, that we're holding on too tightly and that we need to release or we need to re-aim. But we're way past that now. We'd never, as well-adjusted grown-ups, we'd never try to posture or signal or prove ourselves or try to be too witty or too wise we never spend most of our time trying to find people to surround ourselves with that would project back onto us the image of ourselves and the direction and possibility of our life that we think that we desire. We surely wouldn't lash out at people who challenge us. We'd never form our own supremacies or exceptionalisms and, or maybe just slip into ones that already exist that are very convenient for us. We never drown ourselves in echo chambers and media ecosystems that echo back onto us exactly what we want to hear and don't leave any open space for God to speak. We never do that. But friends, the good news this morning, the good news is that these words of Psalm 131 long, written long before and sung long before the arrival of Jesus, these are God's words to us. For us. These are God's words before they're Israel's words, before they're the church's words, before they're our words. They belong to God's word incarnate Jesus, who we journey with. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer um, wrote if, if we want to read and pray the prayers of the Bible, especially the Psalms, we can't first ask what they have to do with us, but we have to ask what they have to do with Jesus. We have to ask how we can understand the Psalms as God's word, and only then can we pray them with Jesus. The Psalms have been given to us precisely so that we can learn to pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. So in Jesus' mouth, my heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty, just hits different. <laughs> His heart is synced up with God's own heart. His eyes are fixed on the cross. 
bearing it as a consequence of the sin of the world, our pride, our unruly ambition. He dies for our sake and to expose the powers and principalities as the phonies that they are. Unworthy of our worship precisely because they're unable to call us to this kind of humility, to repentance, to, to, to a life with the one true God. These, these voices push fake news of false abundance. Go for more, be more, do more, earn more, try more, and don't stop till you make it. They make us feel like not enough. But Jesus shows us that being fulfilled comes by being emptied taking on the form of a slave. It shows us that the way to save your life is to lose it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me and I will give you rest. And then the psalm goes on and says, I don't get involved with things that are too great or too wonderful for me. No, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child from its mother. We might hear this as like, mind your own business. <laughs> There's a way to read this that sounds kind of cranky and defensive. Like when people tell athletes that they need to drop the activism and kind of stick to dribbling, right? Like just stay in your lane, please. But this is something else. This is a song from a restless heart. It's a song from someone who is tired, who's just tired from a from disquieting itself with the myriad things that it can't and shouldn't try to control, but is now turning to God, is turning all of these things over to God. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You're just tired, and when you come here, this is an invitation to turn things over to God. Uh, in, in a little bit, when we gather around this table and you're invited to receive from Christ's body and blood, you, your posture is not... It's not holding and it's not presenting, but it's empty, open hands ready to receive. And so, <clears throat> lest we relegate this kind of advice to some sort of like coffee talk, quiet time, like genteel spirituality, this is a reminder of that, that these words are sung by a fugitive king. Like they're, they're sung by David. Like I don't get involved with things too great or wonderful for me. I've calmed and quieted myself. These are, these are written by David, who is on the run from a crazed autocrat looking to take his life. <laughs> I don't want to like over-ring the analogy, but David might be tempted to say, I don't need a ride, I need more ammo, as he runs from Saul, right? This song is also Israel's. It comes from a people that was once no people and is perpetually threatened and on the move. Like, Israel <laughs> came from Sarah's barren womb, and their whole history was ended almost immediately on Mount Moriah before it even started. This is a song from a community that God made a way out of no way and brought them through the Red Sea and delivered them. And again... This is primarily Jesus' song. The king of kings wearing a crown of thorns. So this is Jesus' song. The guy that calls these haphazard disciples, seeks out the lost and the sick, bears this messianic secret. Don't tell anyone, not yet. 
submits to the mocking and terror of both church and state, every knee would indeed bow and every tongue confess on heaven and earth and under the earth, but not without his being emptied, not without Jesus' obedience even unto death, death on a cross. This means, I think, that all of the unpeace that we experience, whether this unpeace is like self-generated <laughs> um, or self-perpetuated, or whether this unpeace is foisted upon us by a sin-broken world, all of the unpeace that we experience is an opportunity to encounter and journey with Jesus. That's where Jesus shows up in this world, in places of unpeace, at the at the bottom of the parabola of emptying. That's always the place where, where our, at least I'll speak for myself, my temptation is to run. <laughs> my temptation is to hide. That's our basic instinct, to close down or to control during a crisis. But if this is true, if that's where Jesus is, that should be an invitation for us to open up our lives to God's presence and healing and restorative goodness. Peace doesn't always uh, mean serenity, but it means an emerging wholeness that we're invited into. The psalm gives us the image of a secure little milk-drunk baby. We've had a few of those in, uh, born in this congregation during COVID. Uh, this is a time when I cede the mic to all nursing mothers. You know? This is a baby who has been weaned off of the fussiness and insecurity of not knowing when to eat or how to eat, who has now come to trust and, and come to have the trust of a creature, fragile, contingent, dependent, but also upheld, sustained, and even more satisfied by a parent who gives from herself to meet their every need. Babies don't have a vocabulary for that kind of frantic desire. When babies are restless, it's, it's often for a reason. St. Augustine famously wrote in his confessions this kind of state that we all bear, like this restless baby. He says, you move us to delight in praising you. He's talking to God. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Then he goes on. He says, Lord, teach me to know and understand which of these should be first, to call on you or to praise you, and likewise to know you or to call on you. But who calls upon you without knowing you? For he that knows you, may not call upon you as other than you are, or perhaps we call on you that we may know you. That's how we're like this, this little baby. We call on God so that we can know God. We seek God, and in our seeking, we come to know God. Uh, theologian Natalie Carnes picks up this like Augustinian God-seeking introspection and puts it in the context of her own motherhood. And she muses on ministering to a newborn. And she talks about the attunement between a baby and a mom, how they, they match up their breaths with each other kind of subconsciously. It just kind of happens. And, and how, how she, over time, began to learn um, the, 
out of the very limited ways of the, the baby's vocabulary of desire was being communicated. Her own baby, she said, was, was milk greedy, not just when hungry, but also when that baby was scared or tired or just wanting to be close to her, would, would paw at her and, and try to burrow into her. Surely we can see that this greed isn't necessarily sinful, but maybe it's misdirected, but it's really just a cry for help. She wonders how she can narrate this desire to nurse as somehow affected with sin, but without slipping into some sort of cruelty. She, she talks to her, her daughter in this memoir voice. She says, your desire for milk is excessive. And in that excessiveness, the desire points beyond itself. It suggests a desire that has not yet found its end. Mingled with hunger, thirst, and the need for human comfort is a desire that will not be satisfied by food, drink, or intimacy. It is a desire for more, for something beyond the world you know. I believe it is a desire for the divine. Your life's singular desire for milk will one day proliferate into a number of different desires, physical, social, sexual, religious but they are now one desire angled in my milky direction, she says. <laughs> even our restlessness, even our restlessness can be seen not as a personality flaw or like spiritual failure, but as a, as a spur towards God or maybe back to God. Calling on God in desperation, even in frustration or complaint is, is out of a need or desire, however pure or warped, to know God, to be known by God, to be in communion with God, with the only one who can know us and help us and fulfill our desires. This is a really deep, deep, profound truth. This is good news that we need to hear. In this framework, there is no, like, secular desire only well-directed desire towards God and, and misfiring desire. Fire is great in a fireplace. It can wipe out whole forests when it's not in a good context. It's these well-directed desires or misfiring desires can be ushered into the life of God. All of these human desires are, are mainly twist and placeholders for our desire for God. So like when you are hungry, you want food, but ultimately you want God. <laughs> Remember that next time you lash at your spouse because you're hangry, right? When you're angry, you want justice, but ultimately you want God. When you're sad, you want comfort, but ultimately you want God. When you're Lusty, you want sex, but ultimately you want God. When you're lonely, you want companionship, but ultimately you want God. When you're fearful, you want security, but ultimately you want God. When you're greedy, you want fulfillment, but ultimately you want God. And these are the moments when you start to feel those things or see those things in yourself or sometimes as a result of some sort of conflict or crisis or interpersonal uh, strife or argument, you are shown them about yourself that drive us to prayer and drive us more deeply to call on God. So when we confess, as we will in a moment, 
Pastor Mag will lead us in our confession. What we're doing is we are confessing how these desires misfire. We ask for forgiveness for the ways we seek comfort and pleasure and fulfillment in other places than from God. We grieve the ways that this sin, what Francis Spufford calls the human propensity to expletive things up, we grieve the way it hurts us, the way it hurts others, the way it hurts creation, the way it grieves God. But we, we lean into forgiveness. Forgiveness in Christ, it, it is a word that is already true before we even embrace it, that we are forgiven. It is already more real than any of the virtual realities of our sin. Already the most determinative thing about who we are, God's beloved children, holy ones made in the image of God and being formed and reformed into the image of Jesus by God's Spirit. So we do this on the way, and, and we, we don't see it completed. <laughs> we, we, we wait. The end of our psalm says, we wait and hope for now and for forever from now. When we were reading that in our liturgy planning meeting, someone says, that's a long, way to, that's a long time to wait. But we hope while we wait. We hope and transformation and transfiguration of ourselves and our world and all of creation which groans for redemption. We wait knowing that our fulfillment can only be in God and that we have to trust God to be our all in all. We wait not knowing everything or maybe even the next thing, but we trust in God with, as the psalm says, with quieted hearts. We all know the difference between the torture of restless waiting in which time kind of crawls along and the active and participatory waiting of assurance. This is the difference between frenetic and peaceful. And so we wait. And as we wait, we, we, we rely on God, we, we aim towards God, we lean on God, lean on the everlasting arms, and we lay aside our best plans, and we keep our feet on the ground, cultivating quiet hearts, even in a restless world. We journey with Jesus to the cross. Will you all pray with me? God, we give you thanks for hearing us when we call. Uh, even when we don't know what to say, when our words are clumsy, or when we feel like we said the exact wrong thing, we thank you that you hear us and that you look at us lovingly. We thank you that you satisfy us and quiet our hearts when we're restless. And we thank you that that you um, are making us new. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.